Now, that's our challenge in this world. And you know, parenting is essentially to help our children find their qualities and use them correctly and find their weaknesses and deal with them and control them and channel them properly. Now, that's one thing, okay? So we've got this theory of qualities, capabilities, and weaknesses. Qualities are not always used well. If you've got a mufti or a university professor, top of the game, very smart, high IQ, you also got another person with the same IQ level, but he's gone into scamming. He's a top scammer. You understand what I mean? You know, the top criminals, they're not idiots. They're very intelligent. They've just used their intelligence in the wrong way. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala al-mab'uuthi rahmatan lil'alameen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa baraka wa sallama tasliman kathiran ila yawmiddin amma ba'd. So absolutely honored to be in your midst. But the problem is that uh, my, li- my job has become a lot more difficult um, with the presence of, mashallah, a whole cross-section of our community. So we have the elderly, uh, mashallah, relaxing on the walls. And uh, we have uh, middle-aged people. We have um, young adults. We have the youth, which is, I think, that part is all relevant to the topic. And then, mashallah, you've decided to bring your children along for something to do about parenting, mashallah. I don't know what you had in your mind when you bring your children along, um, unless they're just going to sit there and just get bored. But it makes my life difficult because, I mean, I'm not trying to throw you out, but... It's just very difficult to talk to four or five different generations at one time and uh, make it relevant and not put somebody to sleep. But we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make it easy and uh, let us begin. So as Monana said, we have, uh, I can't possibly speak about everything in the hour or so that we have that is relevant um, because parenting is um, literally the most difficult thing. It's easier to get a job than to parent because even all the research in parenting says that there is no one method that is effective. Everybody that's research, you know, um, <clears throat> in all the universities and elsewhere that they research, the best way, the scientific way of parenting, there is no single way of parenting that is effective in all cases. However, they've probably excluded the Islamic guidance, the general Islamic guidance. Now, in Islam, the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides us is in some cases, He gives us very specific guidance. For example, inheritance is very specifically laid out in the Quran. This is how much so-and-so gets, this is how much so-and-so gets, and this person gets nothing. So it's very, very clear. But when it comes to, for example, how to rule a country, how to have a political system, There's no one way mentioned. Likewise, how to parent, there is no one particular method that's mentioned with everything related to it. However, that doesn't mean we have nothing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided us a much better system because it is difficult to have one system of parenting. 
because we are from different cultures and different backgrounds, different ethnicities. And not only that, every child, including twins, you know, if you know a set of twins, you'll notice that they're actually both very different in terms of their personality. Have you ever seen twins? And they're both very different in terms of their personality. Even though they were just born literally a few minutes apart, or if that much, and from the same parents, they've had the same food, same nourishment, same upbringing, but they're very different. And the reason for that is very simple, and keep this in mind, and inshallah, if we can understand this, we'll benefit ourselves and we'll benefit uh, our children as well, is one of the biggest challenges of parenting is this, right? So Allah has created every single person here, right? What's, what's your name? Yeah, your name. You have a name, right? So what's your name? You're Ahmed, and who's that little brother? Huh? Ayaz. Anas. So Ahmed and Anas, and you are? Ilyas. MashaAllah. So Ahmed and Ilyas and Anas, they, they and every single one of us here is created with a set of qualities, capabilities. And we've also been created with a set of weaknesses and challenges. Every single person here, every single human being. Allah gives qualities and capabilities and the successful people in this world are those who recognize their capabilities. So then they use it to earn money, to live life, to speak to people, to make a home for him, themselves and get through life and think they're successful. The successful people of this world are those who've recognized their capabilities. Let's just see if we have any, capabil- uh, if we have any successful people here. How many of us here think they're successful? I'm going to put my hand up. Let it not just be me, please. Okay, mashallah. Mashallah, that's two people so far. Only two people are successful. Three. Alhamdulillah. I don't mean you become like Bill Gates. That's not success. What I mean by success is, alhamdulillah, you're doing fine. You've got your house, you've got children, and it's going by. You know, with all the roughness of the world, but it's going by. And that's what I mean by success. How many successful? Otherwise, if you're not successful, you're losers. Okay? Okay, that's a lot more. So the few that didn't put their hand up, what are you, losers? Because that's the opposite of being successful. So those who don't recognize their qualities and their capabilities, whether you're good, you're good with your hands or your mind or with your action, whatever it may be, you know, that's how people do it. Now, while most people do recognize their qualities, they don't recognize their weaknesses, so they keep stumbling. They keep messing up, essentially. The most successful person for this world and the hereafter is the one who recognizes their qualities and uses them. What their qualities means what you're good at. And they recognize their weakness and they control it. What do I mean by weaknesses? So imagine it, you've got a family with three or four brothers and sisters. Four or five children, say. Every one of them will be different. One of them will be sharper than another one. Right? The other one will be, one will be laid back, one will uh, be ready for a meeting, whereas the other one will take five minutes late. Okay, you can decide what you are. Okay? I'm not here to judge anybody, I'm just saying this is... The guy who's sharp, he may, be, he may get angry quickly and the other guy gets angry less. One of them is willing to share his last sweet and the other one is stingy and won't, even if he's got a whole packet. Which one are you? Right? You understand, everybody is different. They come from the same parents, but one of them will be stingier than the other. They're a bit more protective over their assets. So everybody's different. 
Now, that's our challenge in this world. And you know, parenting is essentially to help our children find their qualities and use them correctly and find their weaknesses and deal with them and control them and channel them properly. Now, that's one thing, okay? So we've got this theory of qualities, capabilities and weaknesses. Qualities are not always used well. If you've got a mufti or a university professor, top of the game, very smart, high IQ, you also got another person with the same IQ level, but he's gone into scamming. He's a top scammer. You understand what I mean? You know the top criminals, they're not idiots. They're very intelligent. They've just used their intelligence in the wrong way. As I said, scammers, you understand what I'm saying? So just because you've discovered your quality doesn't mean you're going to use it correctly. You could use it in the wrong. Right? For example, if Allah has given you a lot of beauty or handsomeness, and then you don't thank Allah for your beauty or your handsomeness, but what you do is you use it in the wrong way to basically do haram with, then that's wrong. Right? So that's why it's very important that parenting means that we first, if, if parents don't know how to figure out their own qualities and capabilities and their own weaknesses, how are they going to find that in their children? If they're losers themselves, then they're going to make their children losers and then unless they figure it out themselves. So now the first, our first job as parents, at wh wherever we are now, even if you've got children who are 10 years old already, let us figure out our capabilities. And alhamdulillah, I think most people have, as, as they said. But have we figured out and our weaknesses? My weakness is for food. My weakness is for sleep, so I miss prayers. My weakness is for something else, so I commit haram or I fall into sin. Those are, if we know our weakness, at least we can start doing something about it. And we can help our children to understand their strengths and their weaknesses. This is probably the way to sum up parenting. Allah has given us that job. And this is like pruning. You have, um, if you're into, far, if you're into um, planting uh, good uh, uh, fruits and trees and plants and things like that, or you've got a, Allah has given you a garden. Now you can let it overgrow and let, let, let basically the weeds take over and they grow as they wish. Or you can prune it and clean it and do everything else that you need to do to everything takes time now children have been given to us to prune properly and not to be allowed to grow like weeds some people just make life easy they just take the grass off and put artificial grass on it just makes life easy give them an ipad that's the cheapest babysitting you can get it only costs 200 pound and it lasts for like two three four years and once the ipad's on there mashallah they'll entertain themselves forever and you can go and do whatever you want to do that's like putting you know not looking after the ground so anyway as i said i can't uh, the variables are too much that's why they can't be one system because every individual is different and as a parent you have to be different with all of your children each child is going to provide a a different uh, challenge and we have to be adaptive now we can only be, and Allah has given us the capability because if parenting was so difficult that we couldn't do it, then Allah's words would have been wrong. لا يكلف الله نفسا إلا وسعها. 
that Allah doesn't make anybody accountable for what they don't have the capability. That's why people like scholars like Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah said that if ever a child goes wrong, does something wrong, at some level the parents are definitely the ones responsible for it. I can't blame the madrasa for not teaching well enough. Ultimately it's my responsibility to find a better teacher. I can complain all I like, but it's still my responsibility. Let me find a better teacher then. It's my responsibility. So, one very important, uh, very important advice is that we, our children need to be able to discuss. We need to know what's going on in the mind of our children. They are ours. That's our extended mind. It's who we take pride in. We need to know what they're speaking about, what they're thinking about, what they're being challenged by, uh, what they're... Con- We're not saying get into their mind, right? Um, this isn't a series of Inception, okay? For those who know Inception. Um, but what this is talking about is that at any given time, we need to understand where, what our children are doing. We need to be aware of their friends, we need to be aware of their likes and dislike and assist them in finding better likes and creating dislikes of the right thing. And the phone is what creates a massive challenge in this regard because it is the biggest challenge, I think, that one of the biggest challenges that we have is the phone, which we'll discuss a bit later. But if the most difficult children to parent are the closed books, what I mean by closed books is they don't reveal anything. They don't reveal anything and it's from my experience of dealing with this is that it's too late by the time you actually find out in many cases. Uh, three of them left their faith in the last two years, closed books. Said, you didn't see it coming? No. We didn't see it coming. It was just too late. So if you do have a closed book child, what do you do? You're going to have to find some way to open up the book. If you can't do it, the reason you can't do it is because there's become a trust issue. They can't, they're just naturally very introverted or very closed or reserved or very secretive. Could be a psychological problem based on something or the other. Either we have to change ourselves in a way that they open up because ultimately they do open up somebody or otherwise find somebody they will open up to. Find somebody else like a, a brother or sister or a friend and get them in your confidence and say, look, please find out about this because you'd rather do that than... Uh, before we lose them. So anyway, that's what we explained. So inshallah, we'll give you uh, time to ask your questions. So I've got some, uh, I've got some uh, several bits of anecdotes which uh, I'm going to share with you today to give us general idea. Firstly, um, some of us have not done it right from the beginning. And then we realize when it's a bit late or when the going gets tough. The best parenting is the one that's from a young age. That's for sure, because then we grow together. And um, the tarbiyah is done in a way that as they're growing up, we're looking after them. The best time to raise up a teenager, if we're talking about teenagers, was a decade ago. That was the best time. So that when they're teens, you've already given them the input that they required. You've already helped them find their qualities and how to use them and their weaknesses. The second best time is today. So we still have to do it. It's never going to be not a responsibility. Parenting cannot be left to a chance. They're not like weeds, our children. 
the gamble is too great and the stakes are very high because then we've lost the part of us. Unfortunately, what happens is that parents usually acquire their knowledge of how to parent through trial and error. Gone are the days when everybody of your extended relatives lived in the same area and it was pretty standard. There wasn't much changing in the world. There was no technology. It was the same old community that had been the same for a few hundred years. So everybody knew how it was done. The children expected it that way. The parents knew exactly what to do. The whole community took part in the upbringing. But now it's become very difficult because there are just so many different factors. So that's why we have to adjust. It's such a challenge that it needs constant attention. Every day is a new Especially if we've not done it right, then every day is a new challenge. If we've done it right, then the new challenge will come every few months maybe. There'll always be a new challenge. We have to be just ready to be flexible and to adjust. One of the biggest things that we can do for our children is communication. The benefit of communication is that they know what we want and we know what they want. And what I mean by communication is not orders. Just do this, just do that. Communication means an explanation, a discussion of why we do something. Another thing that I want to bring up is gone are those days when the whole community was one and we brought it up. So what we've lost is we've lost uh, a sense of community and belonging. So every individual is for themselves because this, uh, we call this individualism. It's so difficult to find parents and children who still think alike. Parents could have a business, but the children don't want to take over that business unless they, get, they just have to sit and collect money. Then it'll be cool. And then they'll run it down the drain, right? But otherwise, it's so difficult to get parents and children to think alike. Why? Because there's massive cultural changes that are taking place. That's why parents have to upgrade themselves and update themselves to think on another level. Effective communication. There has to be at least one parent in the house that the, that the children can come and literally speak about anything they want with. Whether that be homosexuality, it be uh, dysphoria of some sort, or gender fluidity, or whatever else it may be that somebody in school is talking about or somebody at home is talking about. Because remember, children are exposed to the environment at school, they're exposed to the environment at madrasa, they're exposed to the environment outside when they go shopping, when they see billboards, what, what their neighbors are saying, what the, park, what the people in the park are saying. The home has to be the filter. If there's no communication and there's no discourse, there's no discussion, then you never know what's going on and then they, are get, they need answers so they'll ask somebody else. So be open, as open. At least one of the parents need to be that open. Now, uh, one thing that our culture deals with is that we've got old practices that come from the villages or wherever we came from. And for some reason, we think that they have to work right now. That's how they used to do it. Why can't you do it like that? Is because things have changed massively. It's just not possible. The way the older generation thinks and the way the younger generation thinks is two levels. No, but they should understand. No, they can't understand. If you wanted them to understand, you should have left them in the village and stayed there because then everybody would have thought the same, maybe, still, because the globalization has taken over everywhere. You've brought them to a different country where, for example, if you're from a Gujarati background, not everybody's Gujarati around you or not everybody's Punjabi around you, or Kashmiri, or Bangladeshi, or whatever it is, right? There's different things 
that you never heard of and your children are going to be exposed to it. Their clothing style is different, right? They much rather have fish and chips than they have uh, pani puri. Do you know what pani puri is? No. But I mean, our Idris Chacha, he's like pani puri, man, all any time. Or oh, fish and chips, what? what's... Fish and chips. You've already messed up. <laughs> British culture, very strong, mashallah. Fish and chips over pani puri. What about bel puri? These guys think, what the heck is bel puri and pani puri? Like, what is this kind of stuff? Right? So, what I'm trying to say is that things have changed, but some people think they're still in a village bringing up their children. And then they lose their children, they don't realize why. Things have changed massively. Things have changed massively. So, new circumstances have emerged which require new and creative treatments and responses. And that's difficult. We have to bring our children up to be proper leaders. When I say leaders, I don't mean leader of the country, you can, but at least leaders of their family. Why, why, what are we bringing up? Because the biggest job we're doing with our children is we're making them into adults so then they can also run a family. That means they've got leadership. That's a leadership. We need to tell them, you are going to have to look after your family. How many times have we said that to our children? Give them the understanding, you know what, you're going to be a father, you're going to be a mother, and these things are necessary. We have to bring them up to understand leadership. And for leadership, we need traits. There are leadership traits, right? And what we mean by leadership is not this ambitious hunt for power as everybody's trying to do today, but rather developing people of strength and courage, moral fiber, good caliber, ethics, and other qualities so that they can become active members of the society. So as I was saying earlier, I, the point I was trying to make is that before, you would be concerned if you did anything wrong because you felt that you were going to take your family down with you. Like if you did something wrong, if I did something wrong, I would be concerned that the Mangera name would be criticized. It would be blemished. Nobody cares about that anymore. There's no sense of pride of your family. As I said, nobody thinks alike, children and parents. What we have to do, we really have to bring this back in as best as we can. So you tell your children that why you can't do that is you're a mangera, you can't do that. Right? You're a khan, khans don't do that kind of stuff. You give them a sense of greater pride. You're a raja, you can't do that. You know, you are a alibai, you're a, I don't know about patels, I mean they're too big, so... I don't know if you can say Patels, but you can say you're a Patel. Mangera is cool, isn't it? Yeah. He's my relative, he's my dad's cousin brother. But for some reason he became a Patel. If we give that, or we are Muslims, we don't do that. That's really amazing. You know why? When they go out and there's somebody who's going to give them a possible haram option. I'm a Muslim, I don't do that stuff. Muslims don't do this. It's a bigger idea than I can't do this because my dad said so. Yes, it's because my dad said so, but it's also because Muslims don't do this. You, you're adding a whole weight. Like if you're told Muslims don't do that, that's a much more important idea. So give them that glory of being proud of who you are because of good qualities. Really, that's what we need to do.
Another thing, just around a while I'm on this topic, many of us want our children to be certain, in a certain vocation and say, we want them to be a doctor or an architect or a maulana, all right? Or a mufti sahab or whatever it is. And that's fine. But don't tell that that's, what, that's your end goal. The end goal of a maulana is not to be a maulana. The end goal of an architect or a doctor, just to be a doctor to make a lot of money and buy a house in wherever and, and, and so on, that's too reductionist and too restrictive and too lowly. You know what you should tell them? I want you to change the world. I want you to be a positive contributor to the world. You're going to become a doctor. So being a doctor is part of this greater idea of helping people, changing humanity, being positive, being a contributor rather than a selfish doctor. You're still going to become a doctor. You're still getting them to become an alim. But the reason they're going to do that is not for a name. They're going to do it for a higher purpose. It's just about changing mentality to have greater ideas. And it's not difficult to do. Unfortunately, our homes have, in some cases, have degenerated to the level of being a hotel and a restaurant where you get free food and free board. The father's like that. He's working, works many hours, and then after that he goes to maybe a shisha lounge or his friends or gets holed up in his room in a, on a laptop, and then the food is there, comes to sleep. There's no interaction. That's not what a home is. There's a poor guy, he's 30 years old, and he's trying to refine himself. He says, you know what, I'm so, so sad because my family, my mom makes this big pot of food, but we've never sat together and eaten. I go, what do you mean? Does new mom cook? She says, no, she cooks. She puts a pot of food on the stove. We all come in and take whatever we want, whenever we want, and we eat and we go like a, like a what do you call it, buffet system. And he feels bad about it. He's 30 years old, he's married now. He, he feels a sense of deprivation. Because something eating together, and the Prophet even ate with children together. There's something about it. There's ideas are exchanged in eating. Food opens up the mind. Food opens up the heart. And there's just something about food. So use that time. Use your food time to discuss. And, uh, you know, while as difficult as it is for me, it's easier for my wife to ask how the day was for the children. But... After I've realized, I actually start like, okay, how was it? Whenever I can. It sounds weird because I'm not used to it. And that's the challenge for a lot of men that they're not used to asking these questions. Not like you have to force it. While in the same thing, people say that you, a father should become, become a friend. A father's never a friend. Meaning a friend is a different idea completely. Because for a friend, you have to do what they do all the time, right? So you're still a father, but you're friendly to your children. That's what I would rather push. That you're a father. You're always a father. You never forget that, but you can be friendly. And that's the amazing thing is that uh, one of the challenges that the very religious have, right, is that they think that keeping an iron-clad instruction and order and making sure that discipline is well-maintained and overly maintained and nobody can do anything wrong, that doesn't work. That usually backfires because then it's a rigid system at home. It's okay if they're going to school and that might be the case. Even that's bad. But at home, where you're spending so many hours of the day, how can you be so rigid? The Prophet ﷺ himself wasn't like that. Allah says, وَلَوْ كُنْتَ فَضًّا غَلِيظَ الْقَلْبِ لَنْ فَضُّوا مِنْ حَوْلِكِ فَعْفُ عَنْهُمْ وَاسْتَغْفِرْ لَهُمْ وَشَاوِرْهُمْ فِي الْأَمْرِ 
the Prophet ﷺ was being told to inter... Uh, firstly, he was commended and complimented that had you been tough and harsh, then the Sahaba would have scattered. They would, they would have dispersed. They would not have remained with you. Then still, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, look, forgive them. Be pardoning, be forgiving. And seek forgiveness for them. And consult with them. If we consult with our children to a certain degree, they'll actually th- feel they're valuable. Right? We consult with them. We have a, and so what I would do is I say, look, I'm saying this, but you convince me otherwise if you want to do it another way. It doesn't always go down perfectly because sometimes, uh, as I said, children are different. So you ha- you'll have one child who gets very angry if you tell him to get off the computer. And he will see no sense. You can give whatever beautiful argument you want about why he should get off the computer. But for that five minutes, he's so crazy, the junoon, the insanity has gone to a level that he doesn't understand anything. You come up with the craziest responses. G- give him five minutes and then talk to him afterwards like, oh yeah, I get that. We have to recognize our children as to how they are. And then you get some children, if they get angry, they go off in a stroke for five hours. You have to know how to deal with that. And that's the same family, you'll get that. How do we deal with that? Well, both we're going to have to deal with them differently. I just mentioned the other places. One guy, he has a lot of OCD problems about whether he's done kufr or not by certain things he say, or whether his marriage is correct or not, and stuff like that. So I've dealt with quite a few people like that. One of them told me that I think I might be like that because my dad was so strict that if I like drop something, I'd get in massive trouble. Right. For example, you know when you have cereal, have you noticed is that sometimes the way you pour the milk and if it falls directly on the cornflakes, it spills out, it rebounds and spills out. Have you noticed that you have to be very careful? Now as adults, you kind of figure out, let me do it from the side or whatever. That kid is always doing that, like telling you, like, why are you dropping the milk for all the time? I can keep saying that all my life, don't drop the milk. But the reason I don't drop it and he does because I know strategy that you do it this way instead. So then what you say to them is, look, you know the reason you're dropping is because the milk comes out a bit too fast, it's quite heavy, right? And you have to control it. And then when it falls on this flat surface, it actually rebounds. So what you do is kind of, uh, you know, tilt the bowl slightly and do it to the side so that it doesn't. You know, like, how do you fill a glass of fizzy drink without the fizz going over and only a bit of drink? Just tell them strategy. You've got no time for strategy, do you? It's like, don't do that. Figure it out yourself. I know I'm 40 years old, so I figured it out, but you are seven, you need to figure it out. It's not worth it. Just teach it to them. So can you pour a cereal without dropping the milk? Okay. What I'm saying is just think about it. Like, what is it? Why is he pouring it? Does he want to pour it? Is he, um, is he losing things because of... And some, some, some are just more scatterbrained than others. So it's just about trying to teach them strategy. Somehow we have to get our children to ultimately believe that we will be f- for them regardless of the situation. If they're, they're done wrong, they might have to hear something. But ultimately you, are, you love them and you will respond to them. And you're dependable. And ultimately you can provide an answer. We can only become like that if we're going to be creative in providing multiple types of answers. But if it's going to be the same answer they know, then they're never going to tell us. For example, these children, they wet their bed until they're 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And uh, unless you recognize, so I know one person, they, they, they didn't used to tell them off too much. 
So somebody asked, why not? I mean, shouldn't you be? They're nine, ten years old. They're still wetting their bed. They figured out that they have a weak bladder. Or they have some other issue. It could be a medical issue. And you'll keep banging on about it every time. Even though you've done it for the last five years, it hasn't improved. So why tell them off in the same way? Is it worth it? No. There's, find out what the issue is. There could be other reasons and causes. Hey kids, I'm not giving you the right to wet your bed. Okay? But what I'm saying is try to understand why they're doing what they're doing rather than keep telling them to do it this way. So we have to put a lot of time and money and effort in our children because that is our investment. Most parents don't take courses of parenting. In fact, is there even a course in parenting? Have you ever heard of a course on parenting? There's not that many available. I mean, there's very few, if there are. And most parents don't, because historically we didn't need to do so. I mean, where do you find in the sunnah that the Prophet set up a course on parenting? Or even later on, even 50 years ago. But why it's become necessary now is because of the confusion. The breakdown of family structure and communities. And everybody scattered. And everybody is getting independent knowledge from the various different things that they observe on TV and social media and so on. That's why it's... I mean, a soap opera or Netflix can't tell you how to bring your children up. That's just glamorized sagas. That's uh, controversial, you know, um, extraordinary ideas that they do just to make people interested. That's not real life. That's why parenting becomes necessary. Otherwise, what's going to happen is that you do it on trial and error. And then you mess up your first two kids and then you might be fine with your third kid. But you've already messed up one or two kids and you may have harmed them beyond, you know, beyond uh, repair. That's why it's important to figure this out. So we've got some parents, they rely solely on their instinct and common sense. Problem is that it's a bigger challenge than common sense because common sense is based on our own experiences. We don't know the future. We don't know, especially if it's our first child, we don't know that if I tell them off too much, then this is that right or wrong. So you know what's really beneficial, I think? What's really beneficial is to have a collection, uh, uh, a group of uh, genuine, sincere friends who all have children your age, uh, uh, your children's age, and share good practices. If you can't find a good, because no course is going to provide you everything, it's going to give you general ideas like I'm giving here, but at least in that way, okay, my daughter, she's got this issue. Yes, don't worry, I had that issue a year ago, but inshallah, it'll be fine, you know, because children go through things. For example, as um, young teens are growing up, they're discovering um, various different things about their body, their mind. Uh, their, uh, when they shift, when they become baligh, and they shift between being still a child and no care for the future, to suddenly they're more aware of their looks, of what other people are going to think about them, about finding friends and so on. It's a very, very, very tough time. Now, as parents, we need to tell them this is going to happen. Don't worry about it. We have to reassure them, preempt it. It's just we've had it so long ago, we don't even remember it, and we just expect them that nobody told us, so we shouldn't tell them. Problem is that the world is a very nasty place right now for that. Because one in four teenage girls have a mental health problem. Standard. One in four girls have a have a mental health problem. 
Why? Because the world is putting out to them a role model that they can't follow. That they want themselves, they, they have to look a certain way, smell a certain way, be a certain way, and get certain things a certain way, and they can't do it. It's too much. So then they become mentally depressed. So there's some common sense, which is usually outdated because when they were parented, it was a different world. If you're about 40, when you were parented, or 50, when you were parented, is very different from now. The world has shifted like anything, has moved. So a lot of the stuff that some parents do, it's outdated. It's no longer for this culture anymore. They inherited from their inheritors, and they have this romanticized memory about it. That's how it used to be. Unfortunately, you know, it's not like that anymore, right? So then they don't realize that parenting now has a different cultural meaning. There's others who completely have taken up the Western way of doing things, which is very different, that they expect that the child is going to leave home at 18. Muslims don't do that usually, right? Some parents, they try to fulfill their own unfulfilled wishes through their children. I couldn't be this, you better be this, but the children don't want to be that. Come whatever. And you don't want to be a doctor. And your parents are going to be really upset. For example. right? It doesn't always work. You can't always fulfill your personal wishes of what you could have done. If you do, you're going to have to work really hard from a young age. I have to mention this, that there's some cultures. They wake up when their children are marriageable age. Marriageable age at 22. One, twenty-two, twenty-three, and said, "No, oh, you have to marry your cousin." Like, what do you mean I have to marry my cousin? I don't like my cousin. Uh, but I promised you to his father and mother twenty years ago. In some cultures, this is literally what it is, right? This is literally what it is. Alhamdulillah, Gujarati culture has other issues. They don't have this issue. Alhamdulillah, you never promised to anybody. Well, I hope not. Anyway, right. And it's a really bad... People have lost their iman because of this. Because the parents usually say, you have to listen to your parents. Allah said... That. That's the only way they bring Allah in. Namaz and all of that, it's out of the window. But this is where you have to listen to your parents. I've seen blackmail. This poor girl, she got forced to marry somebody. And her, she didn't want to marry him because there was no compatibility. But the reason she got blackmailed into it was that her father was sick at the time. And I said, look, if your father has a heart attack, it's all going to come on you. And then she, then she had one child. And she used to go to her mom, look, it doesn't, this guy's a loser. It just, just it wasn't working. Mom said, have a child. Then he'll wake up. Had one child. He still slept. And then goes back, have another child. Three children, no change. Then finally she got out of the marriage. And some have lost their faith. One woman, she was talking, she called and she had a mas'ala, a question, right? A very specific question that only somebody who's f focused on their faith would ask. Like, does this break your namaz? For example, I did this, does it break your namaz? I can't remember what the question was. And then as we carried on speaking, she said she's married to a non-Muslim man. That didn't sound right because that seemed contrary. That she's asking a very specific mas'ala, uh, ruling, but she's doing such a big thing as being married to a non-Muslim man. I said, what's going on here? 
So she said, yeah, about 20, 30, 25 years ago, she was 40 years old, so about 25, 30 years ago, I was forced into marriage. And uh, pretty much I lost, I, I, I left it, I left my faith, whatever, I got married to a non Muslim, and now I'm coming back. And I realized that that wasn't Islamic, that was cultural. So one has to be very careful about these things. When parents have lack of time, because, you see, if there's so much distraction in the world, parents are going to be distracted as well. You've got your football to watch. Before, you can only fo- uh, watch football whenever the game was on. But now you can, mashallah, watch whatever you want anytime. The highlights, you know, every day, five hours a day, no problem. Because it's always something available, right? Because it's all on demand now. So everybody has that. So what we're doing is we're delegating our parenting to babysitters, to a machine, to an iPad or something like that, or school teachers or relatives or television or computer games. They can play a bit of that, but that should not be the easiest way. It's all right, they'll be on the computer, don't worry about it. There are different types of parentings. One is authoritarian. Everything has to be regimental as though you're in the army. Nothing can be off. That's very difficult. You're going to create kids that are like obsessed, uh, OCD. It doesn't always work. People make mistakes. You have to take it easy. Or be ex- so that's authoritarian or edi- uh, dictatorial. Parents demand obedience and severely punish any disobedience. Then you have those which are just authoritative, not dictatorial. Parents expect their children to be responsive to their demands, but they are also responsive to their demands. It kind of works both ways, that look, we want things with some authority, but there's a give and take, and there's more understanding of why things are the way they are. These are the parents who explain the rules clearly, not just rules, but they explain why they want them, what's the benefit of the rules, and what's the harm in not following the rules. And they provide well-considered reasons for rules and regulations. If we can give our children good rules, like for example, if I tell, what's your name? Elias. Have you got an, a kala who really, re- do you know what a kala is? An auntie. You know what one of those are, right? They're really cool people. You got a kala or not? You either have or you don't. I mean, there's no one laughing about it. What is it? Do you have a kala or not, man? Do you have an auntie? Do you have an auntie that really likes you and gives you a lot of stuff? Everybody has one of those, alhamdulillah. They're so beautiful. Allah bless them, whoever they are. Right? So you've got an auntie like that, right? Now imagine the next time you go to her house and you ignore her because you want to go and play on the PlayStation that your cousin has. And you just like go in and you don't even say salam to her. You just go and run. Is she going to feel good about it? Is that good what you just did to her? No, right? So that's why we make namaz. You know why we do namaz? Because Allah has given us everything that you have. Everything. And all he wants, he's been so kind to us. The food you get, the parents you have, the clothing, the warm house, everything. The fact that you're even in this world in the first place. All he wants is us to pray five times a day, fast in the month of Ramadan. Is that too much? Now imagine if we don't do that, is he going to be happy with us? Is that even good for us to do that kind of stuff to an auntie and then thus to Allah like that? No, right? So that's it. It says hardly anybody explains namaz like that. There's like namaz poro. You have to pray, otherwise you're going to be punished. If we can get our children to be conscious of Allah, our job will be easy. And the way to find out if our children are praying for us or for Allah is very simple. 
do they pray when you're not around? Whether they pray late or early, they've got a consciousness of it. And if they don't, then forget about telling them to pray. Work on developing their relationship with Allah and praying for that reason. Then your job will... They can be anywhere. And if you tell them, we as Muslims don't do this because we are with Allah, you've given them that identity. It's very important. Remember, a domineering attitude is not the same as training somebody. Domineering just means that you're just forcing people to abide. But training is what we're supposed to be doing with our children. We're training them. Training means you're finding their weaknesses and you're trying to sort them out and turn them into strengths. And you're getting them to recognize their strength. Again, it goes back to what I said at the beginning. You have to remember the lack of attention given to skilled parenting is equally responsible for the serious emotional and psychological deprivation in young children. The reason why there's so much rage out there among criminals, people who go into crime, who go into these, why does somebody from a comfortable home with loving parents who are considerate and have a good dialogue, why would they get into drugs? So I spoke to somebody, why do kids get into drugs? One, for money. Number two, for some clout. Number three, so they can belong. These are multiple reasons. If parents are providing all of that and they're satisfied, why would they get into drugs? They'll think twice, thrice, four times about it. We have to know what our children, and I think um, if I can leave you with one advice, is that keep your children busy. If your child can be going to school, then university in the morning, or madrasa, wherever it is. And so if you're going to school, let's just say you're going to university, in the evening going to some madrasa, Alim class, whatever it is, and in the weekend you're giving them some job to do where they're working and making some money, and they literally have no time to waste, then while you might feel sorry for them for doing so much work, but that's their youth years protected. Because they're, once they're beyond the years of youth, they're less willing to take silly uh, risks and make silly mistakes and get into the wrong crowd. You've protected them. Keep them busy. But for that, we're going to have to really think of how to keep them busy. And that means we have to come up with ideas to keep them busy. Parenting can make or break a family, not just a family, a society and a full civilization. We encourage, I mean, we're encouraging parents to think of the bigger picture when you're parenting. It's not just about your child. It's about the whole society that your child is going to contribute to and we're going to contribute to. This is a very big idea. You have to also remember that if children are going to be raised in a, lot of, in a state of fear, that they're always worried about when their dad comes. So when their dad comes in, they go to another room. When they come into the house, they fear of their mom and dad. They just go and hold themselves up in the room. If you've got a child who'd rather be outside with his friends than comfortable in the home, or if he's in the house, he wants to be holed up in a room with the door closed and an iPad, then you've got a problem for sure. That's 100% you've got a problem. Why should children not feel good about sitting with the families? You know, sitting, because there's nobody discussing, there's nobody giving them something worthwhile. But remember, if a child is raised in a state of fear and oppression, they will become afraid to take risks and will be afraid to make decisions because they've not been allowed to do that 
they've been punished on every week, every mistake they've made. You know, after observing many people who came out right afterwards, when I see a child, they tell me that he messes up, he messes, he gets in trouble at school every now and then. I think, mashallah, this guy's going to do something good. He's going to be a bit of a risk taker, and inshallah, if you do proper tarbiyah, he'll be actually willing to be a mover and shaker. So I don't write off children who mess around a bit. There's two different types of messing around. One is innocent messing around, childish messing, messing around. And the other one is evil. It comes from a place of evil, it's shaitaniyat. If our children are learning shaitaniyat, like an evil, that is a problem. But if they're just messing around, let them mess around a bit. Not too much, they have to get disciplined. There's one kid who's always getting in t- trouble at school. Right. Innocent messing around, he gets in trouble. So, Parents saying to him, like, what's wrong with you? If you want to mess around, be smart about it. <laughs> what else are you going to do? Tell him not to mess around. He still wants to mess around. So, okay, be smart. He, because he says, actually, it wasn't me. It was my friend. I said it afterwards. Yeah, but why did your friend not get caught and you did? Because you're a little show-off, maybe. So if you want to mess around, then mess around in a way you don't get caught then. I don't mean shaitania. I mean like, you know, people want to mess around a bit. I said, you're silly. That's what I would tell them, right? Like, you're silly, you're being silly. If you want to mess around, do it in a way that you can have your little and, and don't get caught about it. I mean, that doesn't work all the time. I don't want to give you bad ideas. But I'm saying that sometimes ch- children just don't stop. So then you tell them, okay, at least do it in a way that you don't get in trouble. So at least that will stop them from doing it half the time. But yeah, I've seen, a, because you know, when you go through madrasa, a boarding madrasa, you see a lot of kids that used to mess around. And now, mashallah, they are big imams, they're big scholars, they're doing so much work for the community, and they're all messing around in the madrasa. There's a lot of promise. People, alhamdulillah, they can become good people, right? You don't have to be a saint from when you're. There's a few people like that. There's saints from birth, mashallah. But not everybody's like that, right? There's people who've gotten in trouble, all sorts of trouble. Alhamdulillah, they become successful people afterwards. So don't write off any child. You just have to work and get them right. It's just another challenge. right? Parenting is the most rewarding, stimulating, and ultimately pleasurable experience one ever will go through. But it can be the most demanding. You know, feminists who are against having children because they said that that was going to disturb your progress. If you have children, you have to worry about children. You can't go to work, your occupation, your career. When those same feminists from 20, 30 years ago became 40, divorced, no children, they're complaining now, they realize they were wrong, they're feeling alone. That's why parenting, the reason is rewarding if you do it right, is that when you get to that age finally, and that's why I do it earlier, because you'll be fresher to do your tarbiyah than when you have children when you're 30, 40 and you're too tired. Then they'll walk all over you maybe. Do it when you're young and more vigorous. Right, the culture, you know, you go to a school in the morning, drop your kids off. Most of the Muslim parents are young 20-year-old girls, uh, 20-year-old women. And you see, you a lot, unfortunately, the law of the non-Muslim, they're like 30 and 40. Because they just start later, because they were more worried about their career. Just remember, good character is rarely a product of chance. Rarely is it like just something that comes about even if you didn't try Good character is always the result of happy homes, stable environments, committed parents, and good tarbiyah. So for example, I've been hajj 
multiple times in a group of like three, four, five, six hundred people. And it's interesting how humans are. And out of everybody who are like just standard, you'll see one or two people, they stand out. Why do they stand out? They have some amazing character. They're just different. They are just special. They're not alims or anything. They're just very special people. And you see that, mashallah, they just got things right. And then you get speaking to them multiple occasions. I've gotten to speak to them and I find out that it's because their father or grandfather was this special person. You can see the tarbiyah. Now remember, anything that you do to your children is going to have impact and repercussions all the way down in your generations. You have grandchildren yet? How many? Ten grandchildren. Now those ten grandchildren are all yours. They're yours. They're not Ashraf Chachas or, you know, they're not Nazir Chachas. They're yours. Is there any stopping those ten grandchildren from having their own children now? No. We'll be gone and they'll carry on. And they'll multiply, inshallah. You've got ten. They're going to multiply, right? Soon they're going to be a hundred and we'll be long gone. But on the day of judgment, you'll come up and you'll see in front of you maybe hundreds or thousands. And like, these are all your children. Think about it that way. So you know when you're parenting, I'm not parenting just for my children. I'm parenting for my descendants. And I'm scared. Because the way I want my children to be, I want them to want their children to be and their children to be. And when I see there's some you know, really great person and then their grandchildren have messed up some, I'm like, subhanAllah, only Allah can protect. But you have to have that vision. And every dua in the Qur'an that is about children is not about children. It's about progeny. It's dhurriya. رَبَّنَا هَبْلَنَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَّاتِنَا رَبِّ جَعَلْنِي مُقِيمَ الصَّلَاةِ وَمِنْ ذُرِّيَّتِ Allah is telling you, don't just pray for your immediate children. Pray for your descendants. Why not? Why not? But for that, it's a bigger job now, right? I want all my grandchildren to be a certain way, I'm going to have to do proper tarbiyah of my children so I can increase the chances. And for me to do tarbiyah of my children, we're going into a whole different subject. I don't want to open that up. I better find the right wife. And if I'm on the right wife, then I better start before I find my wife. Now you might think, well, I've already got a messed up husband or wife. What do I do now? <laughs> you do the best that you can. People have changed. For example, you've got a mother-in-law who oppresses her daughter-in-law. So you find out from the mother-in-law, why do you oppress your daughter-in-law? Like, honest. Oh, because my mother-in-law did, that's how she did it to me, so that's why I'm doing it. So you go and ask her mother-in-law if she's still alive. Why, do you do that? why did you do that? Oh, because my mother-in-law did that. So you, she's dead, so you go to her grave and say, why did you do that? Why did you start this sunnah? She said, I didn't start the sunnah, my mother-in-law did that as well. Come on, man, you're going to have to stop that. So tell the last one, you stop that so that you don't have to continue this bad sunnah. You be the new one to start a new sunnah for your descendants. Think of children as more than children, it's descendants. It's descendants, right? That's the most important thing that you can think of, and that will keep you up at night. How do I make that happen? But if you have the concern, you can ask Allah, then He's willing to give. We'll be gone. Wallahu yatawalla salihim. You know, I was once with uh, Mufti Mudaffar Hussein Sahib. He was the muhtamim of the Darlum Waqf of Sahranpur. 
This was in 1999. His father was Mawlana Yahya Saab. Right? Mawlana Yahya Saab, uh, big mufti of Dalum uh, Sahranpur Madahillum. He was a proper Zahid, this uh, mufti Mudaffar Saab. So was his father's name Yahya? Or maybe I'm mistaking his name. Once we were in his majlis and he said that my father left nothing when he died. He, would give, he was like Abu Bakr Siddiq, you know, like giving away everything and not keeping any, just taking enough money to survive. So somebody asked him, that, what are you going to leave for your children? He said, I've tried to make them salihin, righteous people, God-fearing. And Allah says, Wallahu yatawalla salihin. Allah takes care of the salihin. So I've, I've done my job, Allah does the rest. And mashallah, that's it. That's your descent. So unless we think far, uh, uh, far into the future, we're, we're going to think it's just about me and my wife and my child. It's not about that. It's a much bigger idea. It's a much bigger idea. It's a much bigger idea. You know, I have several friends from different countries that are Sayyids. That are Sharif, Sayyid, uh, which means uh, family of the Prophet Sallallahu descendants. And there's a quality in every one of them of generosity and other quality, open-heartedness and generosity. I've seen that in multiple countries. They're all Sayyid, right? Indians, Jordanians, uh, Pakistanis. They're proper Sayyids, right? And they all have a certain quality. This comes down. I have seen families where there's no alim in the family. And now, mashallah, the way they've made it is that all of the next generation is all Hafiz now. There was not a single person And now everybody is That tradition is going to carry on What tradition? You need to make changes One family I know no, None of the women used to wear hijab right? It wasn't a tradition One of them went to become an alima She came back with a niqab Forget hijab Everybody protested Like Alhamdulillah most of them now are fully covered You start it off you change the next generation, but it's a big job, it's a big job. That's, the, that's why people lose out. They all have this idea, but we lose out. But at least you know now. So anyway, I'm going to stop here. These were a lot of disparate thoughts to just get us to think how important this is and some ideas to put into motion. Remember, let our children find their qualities and their weaknesses and let's prune them and get them to become the leaders of the next generation and our descendants to be wonderful people, inshallah. Okay, your questions. How can we create love and nurture among siblings? Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Make a lot of dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and keep reading Allahumma alif bayna qulubina wa aslih dhata baynina. Very powerful dua. Whenever I've had a little misunderstanding with somebody, you read this dua. Oh Allah, resolve that which is in our hearts and uh, reform the, whatever the issue is between us. And it, it's amazing. It works very well. So number one, keep making dua for them. And then basically, I think from a young age, we need to give them an understanding. You need to... Uh, we, we don't want to make them each selfish competitors. Only healthy comp competition is fine. So there must be a reason why they're at each other's throat. It's completely fine, by the way, for younger boys or girls to have a bit of a, a banter or a bit of uh, fighting. It's fine. Right? That doesn't mean you go and do it. It's fine. It's healthy for them. They need somebody to vent their, you know, their energy, uh, expend their energy on or something like that. So that, that's completely fine. But it's when it becomes, uh, if they can't make up and they're fine after five minutes, then that's a problem. So some of it is completely natural. 
But if they're at each other's throat and they stop talking to one another and all of that, then you've got a serious problem and then you have to find out why. That's the question now. It may be very bitter what you discover or you may not want to think about it. Do you do that to others? Do you stop speaking to people? Do you speak bad about people and shun them and abandon them and stop speaking about them? Where did they learn to do that from? We genuinely have to ask that question. Once my kid came back from school and he said, he's not talking to a certain friend. I was like, where did you learn to do that? We never stopped talking to anybody. Where did you even learn that that kind of thing exists? He obviously learned it from another friend. We said, we don't do that. We deal with the matter. You got an issue with somebody? Let's just deal with it. Let's say what it is. Let's sort it out. Or, uh, let me ask you, how old are you? How old? You're nine years old. And you? You're ten years old. What's your name again? Ilyas. Ilyasab. So Ilyas, do you have anybody in your class at school or in your school that kind of bothers you a bit every now and then? It a bit bothers you sometimes. Sometimes. What do you do about it? Change the subject to give a clever answer or something like that. So if you want him to stop bothering you, you know what the best way to do is? Have you ever tried this? You can try this. Is make dua for him. That, oh Allah, this guy bothers me a bit. Ya Allah, sort him out and me out. Because you've got the next two, three years to spend with him, right? So rather than every time trying to deal with him, just make that dua. And inshallah that will work. So anyway, we need to first find out why, uh, why they have so much animosity. Is it because of us? Then we're giving them a bad model. Then we have to uh, teach them not to be like that. I think if we give them the understanding, you must defend one another. And again, a bit of it is fine, as long as they come out of it. And then we get them to maybe give gifts to one another. We tell them how to uh, go beyond the acrimony in the hearts. And one beautiful way of doing it is making that dua. Number two, if you have this with anybody, you give them a gift. You, you literally go beyond yourself to do something good for them. We teach them how to deal with the anger of their heart and, and, and get beyond it. Again, these are just some ideas. May Allah put blessing in them. Uh, what is suitable age to speak about RSE with our children? Uh, I want ideas. What do you think? Nine or ten? Huh? In some cases, seven. It just depends on what they're exposed to. And I think you should figure out what they're exposed to. You can ask some innocent questions, some probing questions. And if you find out, they already know. Because believe me, you know, you might pull out your children from RSE classes, the proper ones they do, the, the weird ones they do. And then, the, 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 so you, you, you keep them at home. The next day you go there, and their friends have told them everything secondhand with masala. Right? So that's why it's important that you bring this up. The best way to do it to men is very difficult for parents to speak about this, but if you can, it's okay, is to organize a class for, uh, with the local imams on masjid for teenager classes. Or there's actually now decent small booklets written for coming of age. We're going to have a lecture coming up very soon. on. I, I did it in Batley last week. It's going to be put up on Zamzam Academy soon on literally coming up of age and what that entails. Um, from the ages of, I would say, 9 to 14. That's when the major changes happen. So I think it's very important. A lot of the RSE stuff is involved in that, and it has to happen. We can't say that they should be blinded of this fact because they're going to learn about it. So if it is ever brought up at home, like what does that mean? Just explain in a, in a formal kind of way what it is without dismissing, hey, don't think about that. You could say, look, this is how much we know. We don't think you'll understand when you grow up. You can say that, but at least give them something to go by.
right? So what I did last week in Ba'li was that I mentioned how to say these things. I don't want to go through the whole thing right now, but that just gives you an idea of how to speak about it because you're embarrassed usually, but you can speak about it. How can we know? Okay, we did that one. How can parents discuss the topic of intimacy with teenagers when they themselves have been shamed and never talked regarding the topic? I think I just answered that question, right? Parents will inevitably differ on issues. How should they handle such matters in the presence of their children as it can come across that they are unaligned? Yeah. So look, you can't always be 100% on the same wavelength as your partner, right? That'd be really weird if, if you were. It's very difficult. Then it'd be a boring life, right? So it's fine to have some differences of opinion as long as you generally agree on the big ideas. You have to be on the same wavelength there. If you're not, you better work on that. If you aren't any major disapprovals, you do that privately, not in front of the children. Right? Otherwise, it's fine. If they can see a healthy kind of to and fro, trying to say, no, we should do it this way, we should do it this way. And then finally, you agree with the, you know, with the spouse or she agrees with you. Or either way, then the children will understand that that is fine. I don't always have to be right. So if the father is always going to make himself out to be right, then the son's going to think they have to always be right. And the women are going to think that women are never right, or we can't be right, even if we think so. That's going to cause major psychological problems later on. Do you understand? So I think um, it's fine to have a, uh, a difference, but just have it in an uh, a understanding way while providing your arguments. So just try to be less authoritative and more discursive when you're discussing this kind of stuff so the children can see healthy discussion. There's nothing wrong with that. But any major issues, if you do have them, and you need to have them, then take that away. Don't do it in front of the children as, as far as possible. How do you encourage girls to adopt the hijab from a young age? Well, I guess what we, uh, we can do is to talk about the importance of modesty. Rather than saying that you must cover... We talk about the importance of modesty or why they need to cover, why women cover in the first place. And we show how other women covered. And if we've read them good stories, then that will come about in there as well. There may come a time eventually, uh, the biggest challenge to covering is usually the fact that their friends aren't covering. That's usually the biggest challenge, I would say, or their cousins aren't covering or people of their age aren't covering. That's why it's a good idea to have children. Or One of the biggest issues that we have, right, in this disparate society we live in, where community has broken down, is that if you are a practicing person with your family and around you and even your cousins are not practicing, that is the most difficult way to bring your children up. Because you have to visit cousins. They do everything and you don't let your children do anything. It just sounds very depriving. So what we really need is to find families that think alike and become friends with them and then visit one another so that they can be reinforced. I've seen this. There is a young girl and she's like, why should I do this? She's the only one. She's the only practicing Muslim as such. Alhamdulillah, when they went to this kind of a family event where they saw others, oh, okay, it's not just me. I'm not the odd one out. There's others. And they were very uplifting and very empowering lectures that were taking place. Literally that has to be done. So I think that can be done within our youth uh, facilities that literally uh, try to encourage that so that they see others doing the same thing. It's just much easier for people to do what they see others doing rather than feel odd one out. So if you are in a family where everybody else doesn't cover and you do, it's going to be very, very tough. So you have to find other people to do it.
I mean, uh, uh, which ages, I would probably say, I don't know, is it um, encouragement from, you know, to practice and so on? If you're doing it properly, they'll probably want to do it. But I think when they become balik, then it becomes necessary. But before that, the age of nine, uh, 10, 11 at least, 9 if possible, it just depends on if they're small, they're, they're, they're bigger in their body or whatever. There's a lot of factors that are involved in that. So whenever you think that they should actually start doing it because now they're you know, becoming a woman as such, then after that you need to encourage it more and make it a bit more emphasized. Right? And assist them and help them and speak to them about it. Father has hit mother and abused her in front of a two-year-old many times and it's affected his behavior. How can you undo this to help the child who is now three? Look, what's done is done. You need to just sort yourself out so that that can be erased. Alhamdulillah, Allah has given the plasticity of the mind, which basically means that you don't have to be scarred for life. Alhamdulillah, Allah has created the mind as a wonder. They literally, the brain studies, and there's not some really good books on that study, uh, on this subject, you, everybody goes through a, quite a significant change in their brain structure and the way they are as human beings every 10 years. Right? So just make it right, stop crying over that, and really try to overcompensate for this, and inshallah that will be erased with dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In my area, madrasas are not great. My child is seven. He has been taught at home until now, but I am aware of the benefits a madrasa can give. What to do? Um, make a madrasa up a new one. That's really uh, five star. I mean, I don't know what to do. Um, I mean, some of these questions I can't answer. I mean, if you don't have a madrasa, you might have to go to an area where there is a good madrasa. If that's not the case, find some like-minded people. I mean, unless you're just over the top and you think madrasas are bad because you want it. I've had parents like that. And I'm not blaming you for that, whoever you are, anonymous, right? I'm going to make fun of some of these people if that's okay, because I don't know who they are, right? Just to give a bit of humor, but I don't mean it, okay? So, Mr. Anonymous or Mrs. Anonymous, whoever you are, Allah bless you. I've given you some duas as well, right? But sometimes some people are over the top. No Islamic school works for them. I said, that one? No, I had a problem in that one, that one, that one. Come on, I think must be the problem with you now. And again, I don't know, right? So you really have to think. What I would say is that if all the madrasas are a problem, then find some like-minded parents because there must be somebody else who also thinks they're a problem and you start a new madrasa. Find a place, find some really cool teachers, pay them very very well, and then then start a new madrasa and say, this is state of the art. This is not a Joe Bloggs madrasa. And you have to... I mean, there's no magic about this. And like, if that's genuinely what you're saying, and it's possible that you know, the madrasas aren't very well, but I mean, it can't be that bad, can it? But if it is, then start a new madrasa. It's not going to come to you. You'll have to start one. Or go out to another area. How does one deal with a child who does not follow instruction is easily angered? I think I've discussed that. I think, no, I haven't. What we need to do with any of this type of question is we need to first find out why they are the way they are. There must be some reason. There may be very bitter uh, reasons for that, that we, you know, is it from us? We get very sensitive. So they've learned to be sensitive. I don't want to blame the parents all the time because sometimes they can learn it from their fa- uh, friends. So we just have to discuss with them that it's not worth doing that. And you might, you're not going to get an overnight change. But once we carry on calmly, patiently uh, discussing this, hopefully they'll come out of it. They'll grow out of it. You know, there's a massive, uh, from the time that they're, you know, from the babies to when they're about 25, 23, 24 years old, there are going to be major changes. And sometimes they just need time with reinforcement. You can't change it overnight. 
How can we equip our children to be confident in their religion, to be able to interact with non-Muslims at school in the current climate, i.e. crisis in Gaza? <coughs> the way you do that is you have good, solid discussions. Make them proud of their faith that, look, this is the way why you do this and this is why that side is wrong. And then we make them confident, but we tell them to be careful about the way they carry them, otherwise they'll be taken to prevent. So you have to make sure that they do it in a way that they confident, but cautious and careful, and they know their boundaries. How can we explain to children when parents don't live together and help them cope with the emotions of losing the family unit? You need a psychologist for this. I, I don't have a proper answer for this. I've not considered it enough. Right? I can give you some guidance, but that, that's, a, that's a, uh, maybe... Uh, uh, I think the basic thing I can say is you just talk about the reality. But I would really encourage that you don't, don't be a malicious mother or father in, in the sense that you are trying to de uh, deprive your child of their other parent. That is haram, very, very wrong, very detrimental. It might make you feel good that you've got one over the other, but it's very bad and it's increasing. Right? It is absolute selfishness and narcissism, and you shouldn't be doing that. It's very bad for your children, if that's what you're doing. You're not, um, most people don't do that, inshallah. So then you have to just say, look, we had a bit of an issue, and this is what's happening. But I would recommend you get married again. A, pair, a, a child needs both. Unless you've got good sharing custody. Usually the mother has the primary care, but the father should have good access and sufficient access. Right? We, I mean, there's a lot more confusing possibility if the man is a, if the father's a loser, he's not really involved, and that's another issue. Try to get married again if you can. That's very, very important. Otherwise, if you can't do that, then at least have your own relatives, like your brothers and sisters, have close connection, because your child needs both the mother and father. There was an interview done with a woman who was brought up by two women, in the modern way of two women. I don't mean co-wives, right? One man with two wives. I don't mean that. I mean two women he was brought up by. She was brought up by, and she said, it's not the same. <laughs> it, it, they're both wonderful women, she said, but it's not the same. You need that. And there's a lot of studies that show that when children don't have both sides, there's instability in that relationship. It's just natural phenomenon for us to be covered by both. Uh, father gives something, the mother gives something else. One parent can't do both. Get some help. Allah Ta'ala make it easy for you. How will a child be affected where there, in, where there is domestic abuse in family? Where the husband is harsh to wife and speak bad? I guess you, if you already know, then you know. right? I can't answer that question. It's just going to be very bad. Um, a few days ago, last week, there's a female teacher who, who teaches an alima class <clears throat> of teenagers. So third, fourth year, whatever it is. They were having a conversation and it turns out that the majority of the girls in that class said they don't want to get married. It's like, why? Why don't you want to get married? Men are... What did she say? Men are... Men can't be trusted. Men are liars. Right? So she's prodding more like, what do you mean by this? said, I'll never marry... Any guy who's on social media, she's seen the worst of it, I guess, right? Of what people do on social media. So then the teacher asked, do you have social media? Yes, I do, but I'm going to get off it now. Alhamdulillah. Right? They've figured it out. Now, my question when I heard that was, why do they think all men are messed up? 
Because all men are not messed up, okay? Because if that was the case, I mean, that would be very sad for you, right? How do you feel about that? You wouldn't be able to find... I mean, men are like, yeah, I want to get married. But girls don't feel comfortable about that. And it is a problem. Feminism is to blame for a certain amount of that because, say, you know, you don't need men and so on. That, but it's not fully that. Uh, there's somebody I know who, within five, six homes from his house, there's three Muslim families who have 40-year-old daughters who are not yet married. It is a big issue, okay? And there's multiple reasons for that. So one could be an element of feminism. However, the other, bigger issue, uh, the other issue is, is the way people are parenting. There is a lot of uh, discrimination against girls in our families. Boys are mollycoddled. They're brought up to be pampered. And girls have to do all the work. And just a week or two ago, they said that there was a girl who is considering changing a gender to a boy. Why? Somebody got to speak to her, like, why do you want to do that? said, because my brother gets all the favors in the house. I don't, so I'd rather become a boy. Can you see what our... And some cultures are worse than others. There's some cultures who make their girls do everything, and the boys are pampered. They don't even have to make their own bed. The mother will do it or get the sister to make it. All the food, breakfast, everything. The guy doesn't know how to tighten a screw. He doesn't know how to let guests in. He doesn't know how to pay a bill. And he's just on his PlayStation. Or he's just studying. But then they've got the girls studying as well, and they still have to do all the homework. I'm not talking about the permissible study, not study. I'm just saying this is the reality. It's as if the boys get a lot more pandering than the girls do. And that's a problem. What we need, and this is an important point, is what we need is we need to create such a family that your daughter can look at her brother and say that, mashallah, he's such a good guy, that I, I would like my husband to be like that. The model that you're providing. I'm so sad about that, that those group of girls, which may be representative of a bigger issue in other places as well, right? So I asked the question to this uh, teacher. I said, but what about, their, what about her, pair, her father, her brother? said, one of the girls said that my father has been beating up my mom for the last, what, 20 years, and she just takes it. She just hates men, because that's what all men are like in her mind. And this is a big issue that we're going to have to solve, because this is a very cultural issue in some cultures. If you beat your women up, you're really messing up the next generation. That means you want all of your grandchildren to do the same. When I first got married and a friend of mine got married, he's a Maulana as well, some months later, he called me, he said, Maulana, I hit my wife. Like, he's shocked. And he's disgusted by what he did. So I spoke to him and everything. Alhamdulillah, since that, he's never done it again. But why did he do it then? All I can think of is because he's seen his father do it. So he thought that's the way to lash out. That's the way to react in an anger. So if you've seen somebody do it, you'll do the same thing. It's not the way to do it. In fact, I believe that you don't even have to hit your children. I mean, it, it may even be illegal and that stuff, but if, if, you know, a lot of people, they think that they have to beat their children up to get them to do stuff. That's the, that, that was seen as the last resort before anyway. 
right? You know, even traditionally when people used to hit, the way you do it is you just frown. You just tut or frown. That's the first stage. If that doesn't sort them out, then you give them a stern look or a stern word. It's the second level. The third level, if that doesn't work, is you say, okay, fine. Uh, You can't play for one hour or you can't do this or you can't do that, right? If that doesn't work, okay, you know what? You really need to just go into that corner or that room. You can't play with everybody else and just think why. Reflection. You understand? If you use these stages, you'll never have to get to the highest stage. You start off by hitting. What do you have beyond that? If it's a, uh, you start with a chapel, you want to go on to a belt next or what? <laughs> ridiculous. You don't have to do that. There has to be a system in place. Right? And believe me, that system works. You know, you don't have to hit at all. So what methods can be used to create an environment with children of discussion so that it can approach us? To, you just start off a discussion. Random discussion on some issue and then see what they say. If, if you're never used to a discussion, it might be difficult in the beginning to do that. Right? But just start off a discussion. Find a talking point or whatever it is like. Do you see... Uh, so I would say like, you know in your school, do kids... Do, is there anybody on drugs? Just random question. Yeah, yeah, there is this guy or whatever and so on, right? In your school, uh, is there somebody who does that? You can just start off like that. Then you know the way they will say praisingly, disapprovingly. You'll know where we are with this. You just have to be a bit creative about it, I guess. What, pa- what advice can you give when parents are not on the same page and teenage child then behaves differently with each one? Sort your relationship out. I, I, there's no magic. Sort your relationship out. Otherwise, send him to somebody else to bring up, like the grandfather or somebody who's got. Otherwise, there's no, there's no, there's no magic. And make a lot of du'as, du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If a father is on the phone all the time, so he doesn't give time to mother or son, what can we do to stop this and how will this affect the child? I don't know how, it's, it's going to definitely have an effect. But you're going to, if you want to change this, I've got lots of lectures about the marital issues online on Zamzam Academy, so I'll leave you to that. I've discussed that a lot, but briefly speaking, what you have been using for the last five, six years to try to change your husband, it's not working, then stop using that way. It's not going to work because it hasn't worked. He knows that's all you do. So change your style. Use a different power. Maybe a soft power, soft feminine power. If not that, then take a stand. Get somebody else involved. If you don't do anything, it's not going to matter. You're, you're making dua only, nothing's going to happen unless... There's a time of acceptance and you get a karamat and a miracle. But miracles don't happen often. Get somebody involved. Think of it this way, right? You've got husband and wife, for those who can see, on two sides. If they have a problem, then just imagine that the ground, um, they go slightly down like a, a foot into the ground. Now, for them to come back together, they have to come out and be nice to one another and resolve it. If you don't sort that out and they have another problem, you go another half a foot in the ground. And you have a third problem and they go another half a foot in the ground. And over 5, 10, 15 years, you're going to go 20 feet down. So you both can't even see each other, see eye to eye anymore. The only way you can resolve it, you both come out somehow, but you're not willing to because you both want to stay in your trench. You think you're secure and you're right. That's why it's better to sort this out when you're only half a foot or one foot down than when you're 20 feet down after 20 years. I'm dealing with several over 20-year-old marriages, some with ulama and alimat as well. They've just 
put it under the carpet, they've just messed around with it for all this time and now while they, after their children are uh, you know, mature and uh, ready to get married, now they wanna, uh, they wanna out of the marriage. It's so difficult. I've been trying with one, we've been trying with one couple, it's now nearly the third year. I can't believe they're not divorced yet. There's like some desire to get back, but they just can't, they just can't change their ways. Get um, help sooner than later. That's the secret. Get help sooner than later. And don't go running to your mum all the time. Mums are usually, usually, not always, sometimes they're very fair, but mums are not usually the best idea. I've seen marriages break because the first person you went to, for a little small issue, you went to your mum. Because mum are very sentimental, but some mums are very good. So it just depends, you better know your mum. Is she going to help you? Or is she just going to support you to break your marriage? You need to be honest enough to think about that. I've seen many mums break their marriage and some are very decent, mashallah. How can we address the issue of a nine-year-old who finds it easy to lie? First find out why they lie. Do you tell untruths? Do you say when somebody comes to your house that he's not here? Do you do this weird flexing of uh, the truth? They've just probably learned it from you. So a lot of the time they do, but we know why we're doing it. We think... Children don't know, they're not discriminating of why they do it, so they just do it as they want. That's number one. Number two, we have to tell them it's not right, and we have to show them the, uh, the, the importance of truth and the, the problem with nifaq, essentially, of hypocrisy and how it's bad for your heart, and how you, want, you don't want to be different outside to how you are inside. You, know, you, you explain all of that to them, and hopefully they can change, inshallah, inshallah, it's just a passing phase. When spouses are of different parenting approach, what's the best way forward? Either make mashwara and agree to some uh, uh, arrangement, otherwise uh, find somebody else you can go to who will decide between you if you can't agree. Find somebody neutral and decent who can, who can assist you. How does a parent repent if they've been tough on their kids beyond bounds? Just be nice to them now without overdoing it and just try to, and inshallah it will be sorted out. Just be very good to them now and, and maybe you know, say, look, I need, I, I, I need to do this. Uh, in, a, in a better way and, and just do that don't cry over it otherwise you know you're just going to get worse so um, seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and just start being extra nice to the children but not in a way to spoil them obviously right and inshallah it'll take, a, it'll take some time but it will be sorted inshallah is there a need of a British Muslim identity to reinforce positive cultural influence in our children absolutely it's just I spoke about it in the other uh, in the other masjid so I didn't speak about it here but whether you like it or not, we are creating a new Muslim identity. And what is that identity? So let me just take two minutes for that. When people were in the same place, we're in the same village, everybody has the same identity. They eat the same kind of food, they wear the same dress. We've come to England, right? Now, where I live, and I've traveled a lot, so I've got Moroccans, I've got Bangladeshis, I've got Pakistanis, I've got Afghanis, I've got, and, and I've got the fish and chips and the Italian pizza and all of that. We take the best and we remove. Every one of us has a culture. Nobody can escape culture. There's some people that I'm not cultural, I'm acultural. You are, you don't know what you're talking about. Everybody has a culture. All you've done is that you've taken off or you've become a self-hating Gujarati or Bengali or whatever it is and you've just taken on a new culture because culture is part of our life culture is the way we dress 
Culture is what we eat. Culture is the way we behave. Now, nobody here who's been born in this country or have come and stayed here for 20 years, you know, when you go back to Congo, don't you feel there's a bit, they do a few weird things? Yeah. Right? Why? Because we've understood it from it. Now, we've picked up slightly different culture. It's as simple as that. Anybody who's still in this country who still thinks they're 100% Punjabi culture, they're not. You can't be. It's impossible. Culture is what you take on. We need to drop the bad culture from our cultures because there's all these bad elements, especially related to marriage and all that kind of stuff. We need to drop that. We need to take the best of our culture and take the best of any other culture. For example, you go to some people's house and they force you to eat. They put the food in your plate. And then there's some cultures like my friend from half Egyptian Palestinian. He was in Egypt. He went to a friend's house. He'd already eaten. The friend said, you better eat. He said, I've already eaten. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm watching. My, he's careful about what he says. I'm not going to eat. So he said, Wallahi, my wife is divorced if you don't eat. That's messed up. Now, if my, if my friend was stubborn, he could say, I don't care about you. I'm not going to eat. Right? It's ridiculous. You go to some people's house, you go to some cultures, would you like some tea? And you're like a bit embarrassed, so you say, no, okay, no problem. And you really want to, you think like he's going to say, yeah, you know, because you're used to that. And then there's some cultures like, they just bring the tea and everything. And there's others like, would you like some tea? Like, would you really want some tea? You know, these are various different cultures. So pick which is the best. I just told our Moroccan Imam Sab that I, we have Moroccan harira soup and tagine in the house, and I'm actually wearing this Moroccan dress. I would never wear this in Gujarat. I've been to Gujarat from India in the madrasa, and you wear anything different, they look at you. Because they're all one way. There's not much variety there. Only now Saudi jubbas are fine there now. But before, when I was there in 1997, 98, I was bin Laden <laughs> for them, right? You understand? It's just when you've got st strong cultures, then you can't do anything different. It's very difficult to go against that. But here, we need to find out what culture we are. And many people have figured that out, I think. We just don't call it a British culture, otherwise it is there, right? So now, there's going to be multiple variations. of. I don't think we can put everybody on the same British culture. So converts, they're going to have a certain British culture. We can't expect them to be like, have elements of Indian culture. Although, to be honest, Indian food is everywhere. So that they're going to have to have. Everybody's going to have Indian food in this country. That's Indian culture. That's part of Indian culture, which has become British culture now. Right? Culture is a very important idea. There's people who come and say, I don't want to get married to a Gujarati or a Punjabi. Whatever. I said, why not? I said, they come with baggage. I said, okay, who do you want to marry then? A convert. I said, they just come with a different baggage. Everybody comes with baggage. It's just that you don't like this baggage because you're used to it and you found some bad elements to it. Well, they're just going to come with a different baggage and you better get used to that. There's nothing wrong with it though. So remember that culture is very important. You can never be acultural which means you can never be against culture and never have any culture because whatever you do is cultural. But we're, 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 I mean, for example, if you look at me right now, I'm supposed to be from, you know, I'm supposed to be a Gujarati and I'm proud to be a Gujarati. I don't have any problem with that. Not in an arrogant way, Allah Ta'ala protect us from that, right? But this thobe here that I'm wearing, this jubba here is Saudi, 
probably made in China. This, this thing here is Moroccan, but it's been specially made in Jordan. Right? This watch is Japanese. This phone is... Uh, 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 yeah, your phone. My, mine is Korean. Right? Uh, socks are American. And um, it's just... We're a mixture now. So what is the identity? Who defines that? And let it be a flexible culture with certain norms, which is because Islam gives us boundaries and general guidance. As long as we're within that, that's completely fine. But if somebody wants us like, this is British culture, whatever that is, what is British culture? You understand? So that, I guess that's what we're talking about here, that all the good that is in all cultures take it on. So in my house, we cook Gujarati food, but we also cook Moroccan food, Lebanese food, hummus and so on, right? Syrian food, and, uh, and, and bits of, because I've traveled quite a bit, so you find things. Uh, wife made shakshuka yesterday, which is an egg dish. It's an Arab egg, egg dish. It's fine. Nothing wrong with doing that in Gujaratis, right? How can we be build tolerance and patience while doing the tarbiyah of children? It can be very hard and we choose the easier route. Sabr. Sabr. Understand the long game. This is a long game, by the way. You're not going to get response. You're not going to get a reaction straight away. Remember, your benefit of that will be shown 20 years later, 30 years later when you're old, or even after your death. But remember, you're leaving a legacy. Let that drive you, inshallah. My child, I'm going to quickly just finish this up. My child is six years old and she only eats her food while watching her iPad. Fine, they will break the habit. Who started that off? How did she have an iPad at food? My kids aren't allowed iPad except in the weekend. So where did this iPad come from? I mean, why don't you use the same strategy of how to wean them off milk? What strategy did you use for that? Use the same strategy. Let them cry one day. How long are they going to cry for? There should be... Uh, there's a lot of research on this. You need to probably keep the iPad away from them for a whole month to let it come out of their system and then they'll be completely fine they won't be dependent on the iPad let them be away from the iPad for a month so psychologically the hard wiring of their brain to want an iPad while they're eating that will be disconnected they're still children they'll understand that and then you'll be fine inshallah but you know you'll have to bear the crying it'll break your heart Is the schooling and maktab system outdated since our kids are nine hours away from home and get really tired? It's not outdated because this isn't what they did in other countries. In most Muslim countries, it was all part of the system. So the only way to beat that system here is to have a fully integrated Islamic school with both things done well. Because a lot of the, not a lot, but at least some of the subjects in the regular school are a waste of time. They're filler subjects. They don't contribute to, you know. So you either get a proper Islamic school. And I mean, we all went through maktab. Alhamdulillah, I think we're fine. We did normal school. And we did maktab as well. And we're fine. We're not that destroyed, are we? So I don't know why you're modicoddling them. Right? <laughs> give them better food. Uh, I'm, just having a, I'm just having a little uh, thingy, right? Uh, give them better diet, maybe, so that they don't feel too tired. Maybe they've got an iron deficiency or something. Give them some vitamins, give them some good food rather than just chocolates and, 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 and so on. 
No, fish in, uh, the fish is good. The chips is yeah, too much potato and starch. How can you raise your child the way you want with Islamic values while having family who have different values than your child? That needs a whole bayan. My kid is having, I, I think I've discussed a lot of these issues today. You just do your best and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and inshallah you will change your family ultimately if they see a good model in your children, okay? And my kid is having anger issues. I think I've answered that already. Any thoughts or suggestions? Uh, yeah, anger. Why are they getting anger? Is it because one of you is getting angry? Or what are the trigger points? What makes them angry? Is there a frustration? Do they feel deprived? Do they feel discriminated against? There could be multiple reasons for why they're feeling angry. Try to find out the reasons. Then, inshallah, we can help them. Any thoughts or suggestions on the age to give the child a mobile phone? I think around 16. Within the home, right? How to create a strong? A strong Muslim identity, simple thing is that if we can develop God consciousness in them, meaning taqwa, that they can do namaz for Allah rather than for you, then we are successful. And how do we do that? We do that organically. What that means is, we're bringing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mention in every discussion, not every discussion, but in discussions. Like, you got a new set of clothing. You know what, we really, not you, we really need to thank Allah that He gives us so much. Look how beautiful that is. And look at those guys, they don't get, we're so lucky. Look at this food. Like every time you enjoy the food that you eat, just Allahu Akbar, we have so much to be thankful to Allah for. Organically, you just mention that. You can't get this into your children until it's at home. Number two, you glorify ilm and scholarship and Islam. There, a lot of people ask me, why did you follow this career this, this way? I can tell you, and I used to say my father's a uh, Maulana and a Hafiz, and his dad was a, a Hafiz as well. My uncle's a Hafiz from my dad's side, and my mum's dad was a Qari, and uh, his, her brother was a Mufti, and it just runs in the family. Now that's very useful for you, isn't it? It doesn't run in my family, so okay, I don't need to do that. Then I got thinking, because you get people in their family have loads of those kind of people, or they're all businessmen, or they have all doctors, but they don't want to do that. Really what it was is that the deen was glorified in my house. Whenever a buzur came or a, uh, somebody finished his, be like, wow, you know, that guy's uh, their child, he's become Hafiz of the Quran. Look, he's gone to so-and-so country for taraweeh. Look, he's become an alim. Ulama were not criticized. They were not looked down upon. The deen was glorified. We saw it in practice. We saw the way it worked. I'll just leave you with one story. There's a girl who's seven or eight years old. Her older brother, nine years old, needed glasses. He went to the optician. You know, in that age, they check the eyes. He needed glasses. She started making fun of him. You need glasses. You've got glasses. You're going to have glasses. So the mother said to the daughter, don't make fun of him because your dad has glasses, your mom has glasses, your older brother has glasses, you're going to have glasses, it runs in the family. And then, okay, stop, finish. Ten years later, no more was said, ten years later, she is now 17, 18, she's got younger siblings as well, they have glasses but she doesn't. Everybody's got glasses except her, why doesn't she have glasses? Yeah. Allahu Akbar. I think, inshallah, this ban has been successful because the kids are still awake. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Allah ta'ala accept. So, um, 
Allah is going to give victory. All of those kids are dying. Allah is going to give victory. Inshallah, there has to be. There has to be. There has to be. So, um, she made dua, but she only told everybody eight, after when she's 18 that, you know, mom, when you told me that I'm going to get glasses, I started praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why did she start doing dua to Allah? Answer me that question. Okay, that. You're saying that because she wanted to prove her mum wrong and she wanted to justify that uh, she made fun. I don't think it was that second one and I, it was a good try, mashallah, but I don't think it was the first or second. She just started feeling like, no, I don't want glasses. And I'm going to ask Allah not to give me glasses. My question is, why did she ask Allah for? Hmm? Because she was brought up to, be, to, to ask Allah. Now the mother at this point should have said, look, you make dua that Allah doesn't give you it. She didn't. She forgot about talking about that. She said, look, don't make fun of him. But she decided herself that I need to make dua because she already learned that dua works. That is how you bring the faith in the house because you teach them that from a young age. You're telling them stories of the prophets where duas are accepted. They're going to imbibe some of that. That's why I read stories of the prophets and the sahaba, alayhimussalam radiallahu anhum, to your children when they're young, they imbibe a lot from that, some really important goals. Now imagine if your dua has been accepted like that. Are you going to doubt God? Are you going to doubt Allah? That's experiential. You've had the experience. And dua is very powerful. In my kids, what we've done is that from a young age, whenever they have a little pain somewhere, uh, instead of rushing to get a paracetamol or something, you say, I read a bit of duas. Any dua, Surah Al-Fatiha, Ayat Al-Kursi, and blow on them. 50% or more of the time, they get better. Call that uh, placebo effect or godsebo effect or whatever you want to call it. And they get old enough, they, they read it for themselves. I said, put your hand on the pain. Allahumma rabb. They all know this dua. Allahumma rabb al-nas al bas we don't just rely on that all the time we might give them medicine as well sometimes but for small things they just get better you have to teach them to invoke Allah and we don't invoke Allah enough we need to get them to invoke introduce the names of Allah to them I'll give you a simple example and we'll finish last point we'll just finish here I did a, uh, I, I uh, produced this copy of Al-Hizbul A'zam uh, Arabic, beautiful, illuminated edition to make it easy. We actually did a makra here in this masjid before it was uh, fully done, right? It was Arabic only. A lot of people started asking for English. And uh, so in, by 2021, I got the English translation ready. I was very happy with it, but I wasn't happy with the design of how it should look finally. So I kept it on the back burner and I just couldn't be satisfied with the design. Then finally, after this Ramadan, I said, look, I'm wasting it. It needs to come out. But who's going to give me a design that I'm satisfied with? I'm a bit fussy on these things. So I decided that, you know what, I need to ask Allah with a relevant name. Which name is relevant? Musawwir. Which other name is relevant? Jamil. Elegant, beautiful one. I called out with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Within five minutes, I had a design that I was satisfied with. Allah responds if you call out to him. Believe me, anything. You go out, I go out on my bike, I, I, I ride on my bike to Madrasa, right? Because just traffic and all of that is a crazy, it's good for you. 
And sometimes it starts raining, or it's gonna rain, and you're like, oh no. Allahumma hawalayna wala alayna. Oh Allah, around us and not on us. Most of the time it works. Most of the time it works. Once I was in Mufti Taqisab, where uh, we were in Jordan, and we were just waiting to visit. Uh, it's a conference that we're, we're members of. And uh, it's myself, Mufti Saab, Malna Madani Saab, Mahmoud Madani Saab. So we're sitting there waiting for the next meeting. And I had developed a stomach problem. I don't know what I ate. I don't know. I was just pain in the stomach. Malna Madani Saab, he goes to Mufti, he goes to me, he said, if Mufti Saab puts his hand on your stomach, and pray and makes dua, you'll be sorted. I'm like, that's not going to happen. I said, ha bilkul. I said, Hazrat, uh, if you can do it. It was a bit of a banter. I mean, Mufti Sahib is, mashallah, Mufti Taqi Sahib we're talking about. I didn't expect that, you know. So I said, so Mufti Taqi Sahib said, oh, he can do it himself, then dua will be effective. So then I decided to put it in. I said, but asra'u du'a'i ijabatan, du'a'u kha'ibin li ghaib. The faster dua to be accepted is for, uh, by a person, for a person who's not present. So he said, but I'm present, you're present. <laughs> then Allah bless him, Allah bless him, Allah bless him, raise the status even more. He put his hand on my stomach and did the dua. Not the Allahumma Rabban Nas, the other one. What is it? What is the other dua for shifa? I forget the beginning words. That one, yeah. Louder. That one, he said it several times, right? And alhamdulillah, within an hour or two, I was fine. These things work, man. They work. It's just that when you take your tablet, take your tablet, but say Ya Shafi when you're taking it. When you're asking for something, use the right name. You know, read the, uh, take the 99 names of Allah and adopt a few for your current situation. And you'll find that they're amazing because Allah loves to be known. And He, 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 he gives a lot when, when you recognize Him. So teach our children that organically and inshallah. Um, Allah bless this program I know it's gone late uh, uh, But uh, mashallah May Allah bless your sacrifices On this Saturday night Right? It's a Saturday night when you could have been Doing so many things, you could have been going out to eat You could have been watching football You could have been just bantering And doing a lot of other stuff But you decided to stay here And uh, mashallah So may Allah not just bless us But bless our progenies until the day of judgment uh, the point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion. The next step is to actually start learning seriously, to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level, so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, and that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that... Uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially, for example, the Islamic Essentials uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essentials Certificate, which you take 20 short modules. And at the end of that, inshallah, you will have gotten the, the basics of uh, most of the most important topics in Islam, and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind. You can continue to, leave, uh, you know, to listen to lectures, but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.